Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be with you again today. Have our friend Dick Foth for a, a time with Back Channel with Foth, and then we'll jump into our um, interview with Steve and Lisa Cuss, where we discuss uh, managing leadership anxiety and specifically what that looks like managing anxiety in marriage. And um, have a great conversation with Steve and Lisa. Dick, so great to be back with you again today. Thanks, Aaron. My joy. Wonderful to be here. Good deal. Dick, first question I have was sent in from a listener. Um, actually, these two um, were put together um, from the same person. When it comes to partnering in ministry and marriage, who has influenced you the most and how did they, influ- how did they influence you? You know, I, I was interesting when I saw that question because you had sent this to me a couple of days ago just to be reflecting. And I, yeah. um, when I was a young pastor, there was an, a guy who was older than I. I was 24. He was 39. So I considered him on a downhill slide, almost dead. <laughs> 24, 39-year-old. It's like the ancient of days. And he pastored a church across from St. Louis in Illinois. And he was a kindred spirit. And I, we talked about this, and I looked at his family. And what's interesting about models for ministry and marriage is that you can have people who are very conservative in how they bring up their kids and their families very conservative, or you can have folks who are, are a bit more uh, free, liberal, not in the political sense, but just liberal in, in terms of giving space and not having as many guidelines. And what I found is that if there's consistency in either of those and it's centered for Jesus, then it tends to often, most of the time, I think, work. And Alan Groff was his name, and he did that for me. Wow. Uh, he didn't know he was doing that for me, but I was watching him. Yeah. And that, that was profound. Another couple... And uh, that that I've spent a lot of time with is our, our son-in-law Van Clements and his wife Erica, who pastor a congregation and have been in, the, in this congregation for over 25 years in Eugene, Oregon. They have four kids, and just watching them and the folks who are older who are listening to this and they're and they're saying, you know, I'm sort of we we gave our daughter away to this guy and <laughs> there in Kentucky or someplace, right? But but up close and personal, watching them, how they frame their values hmm. um, uh, and, and how they work at it has been a great inspiration to me. So I think those, I'll just pick those. There could be three dozen, but I'll right. pick those. Two. Good deal. And uh, uh, Alan and his wife are now with Jesus. Yeah. And Ben and Eric are with Jesus, but they're still here. So. <laughs> Dick, the second question the listener sent in um, was, what books do you recommend on marriage and, and marriage and ministry? It's kind of along that same theme. What what books do you recommend on marriage? And um, if there's a tie into ministry. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting because there are classic books from years past. Right. And just because they're old books doesn't mean they're wrong books. Right. So whether it's a Norman Wright or Chapman or any of these folks. But more recently, I've had two friends. One, one is a marriage counselor for many years. His name's Gary Brugman, and he lives in Denver now. But he was on our student life team when I was at Bethany College back in the 1980s. Hmm. And 
went on to be a vice president for another college. But he and a fellow named Nathan Harrop, who was the son of missionary parents at one point, yeah. uh, wrote a book not long ago called The Seven Seeds of Breakthrough Marriage. Wow. The Seven Seeds huh. of Breakthrough Marriage. And it, the subtitle is Growing a Heart Connection Through the Best and Worst of Seasons. Wow. And it, it, um, it's chapters, I'll just real quickly say it. Yeah, for sure. Ephesus, the reluctant gardener. Uh, Second one is on safety, preparing the soil. Faith, the first seed. Compassion, the second seed. Communication, the third seed. Forgiveness, the fourth. The fifth seed is trust. The sixth seed is intimacy. And the seventh seed is sacrifice. It isn't a, it isn't a bigger heavy, but, but it's very practical. Both of these books, I'm, very practical. So yeah. the names are Gary Brugman, B-R-U-E-G-M-A-N, and Nathan Harrop. You can go to Amazon and yeah. you can get that. The second is from a young man who was my aide in D.C. for a year. I knew his dad very well. He lived in Naperville, Illinois, and he's executive pastor with Mark Batterson at uh-huh. National Community Church, Joel and Nina Schmidgall. Uh-huh. And Mark Batterson wrote a book called um, The Circle Maker. Yeah. And subsequent series of praying circles around your kids. This is praying circles around your marriage. And Mark didn't write this, but this is uh, he, he gave input to them. And it's it's more like a workbook. Okay. So it's praying circles around your marriage by Joel and Nina Schmidgall. Hmm. And you can also get this on uh, Amazon. Great. Both, both of them are very practical. Yeah. Good deal. And uh, that's uh, that's the reality. Good practical information will, will help us. And uh, yeah. no, appreciate the, the wisdom and insight, Dick. Appreciate the resources and the references. And I'll put those in the show notes. So if people wanted to get access to those and uh, you gave me some good ideas from first future interviews on the podcast, too. So uh, Hello, one one other thing real quickly yeah. is, is that in terms of partnering in ministry and marriage and how that, how that works, especially with the kids, if there's a way, and, and this depends on what kind of mission environment you're in, if there's a way to engage the children in the work, yeah. um, you know, when you're a pastor, oftentimes, or if you're in an administrative role, you're off doing whatever you're doing, like a corporate person and your kids right. have no idea what you're doing. But if you're out there in the villages and feeding the hungry and doing right. all this kind of thing, it's a natural thing to include the children. And I, my experience and observation is that when the children are included at some level, mm. not tasked all the time, right. but at some level, then things tend to work generation. Well, Dick, we're going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Steve and Lisa Cuss and um, have a great time with them discussing lessons they've learned in life and um, ministry and specifically discussing media, managing leadership anxiety. And um, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go.
Well, greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here again today. Um, Steve's episode is going to air this coming Monday as we're recording this. And so, um, but we have the great opportunity to be here with Steve and Lisa Cuss. And um, we're having a specific focus on marriage. And um, when I reached out to Steve and asked if they would consider being on the podcast, he gave me a very favorable response. And um, I was excited and asked my wife and kids, they can tell you. So Steve and Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Lisa, could you go ahead and just share a little bit about yourself and and for you and Steve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we've been married for 24 years at this point. We have three kids, um, 19, 16, no, 19, 17, and 13. Um, And then we've been in Broomfield, Colorado for the last 15 years where Steve is lead pastor um, I am a teacher originally, and then I decided several years ago to change careers and went back to school to get my master's in clinical mental health. Wow. Um, so right now I'm a um, counselor that works with families, um, both children, parents, and adult women and teens, wow. um, and am learning so much just yeah. in sitting with them, looking at what change looks like, yeah. looking at how COVID has impacted them. Um, yeah, it's a rich place to be. Very, very interesting. What, how did, why did you decide to go back to school? That's, that's interesting to me yeah. that you were a teacher. My wife's a teacher. And um, was there an event that decided to go back in and specifically mental health? I, I'm a nurse and uh, we, yeah. did our, we did our psych rotations and, and Steve reading his book, you know, as he talks about being in the hospital, you know, honestly, I was scared to death um, because I was 19 years old. I had never been, I grew up in a family that was what I would consider stable. We didn't have anybody with a challenge. And so I've got put in a room with four guys and it was near a state prison and they would attempt suicide. So they would get a 90 day psych eval in this, um, this center. And then we sat down and the guys, my, the, my four guys that I were working with were all murderers and two of them were rapists. And um, we sat and and I'm 19 years old. They're all older than me. And we're, and I put my, honestly, I sat in the corner because I did, I thought I am over my head, way over my my head. I don't know what I'm doing. And my goal, my job that day was just to have conversations with them. So anyway, I have great respect for people because I thought (laughs) I never want to do this. There's no way. I am way over my head. So what made you decide to go back and focus? Oh man, it was, it was, yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah. There were, there were actually three factors and um, I mean, I could talk all day about this, so I'll, I'll try to make it um, quick, but I grew up a pastor's kid Mm -hmm. and that has a lot of perks with it. And I found in my adulthood um, that I was just confused on my identity, right? Like, who I am outside of what I do yeah. um, and, and what's enough and yeah. what it means to be loved by God. Yeah. So I ended up, there was a lady um, that was a um, women's, she directed the women's ministry to church near us. And she ended up um, leading a two-year study for women that combined psychology and theology. And it really focused on who we are, where is God in pain? And outside of both of those things, like, what does purpose look like? Um, and that was really impactful for me. And then I noticed I was working um, in three different schools for homeschoolers. And I would come in and set up and teach science. 
And I noticed over time that I spent more time bringing kids out, talking about how to handle their anxiety, talking about their social issues. I love conferences with parents because that's when you get the meat, right, of what's hard in the family, what's going on, how it impacts kids. And I started caring more about that than I did about the science. <laughs> so I thought, better to pay attention to that. Um, and then we, in our church, we, for about six years, we lost four young dads. Mm. And just walking with families through that and um, being a part of just being with children when they were learning either that their father had just passed away yeah. or that their dad was never going to come home from the hospital. Um, yeah, I just thought, man, what, what does it look like to walk with people beyond just the hug and yeah. presence? And so those three things just thought, made me think, yeah, I just want to go back to school and jump into yeah. this new field. And yeah, I've learned a lot. Yeah. It's exciting. Well, Steve and Lisa, we're going to have a discussion today um, and, and about marriage. And I'm so excited to learn from you both. Steve, um, when it comes to, to marriage, has there been a person that has influenced your marriage more than another, somebody that really sticks out? Maybe that was family or a mentor, a pastor, or someone that has impacted um, you when it comes to marriage? That's a great question. I, I think we were really fortunate early in our marriage. Uh, we, we just graduated from college and we moved about two hours away when I went to grad school. And there were two couples particularly, uh, their names are Keith and Kathy Davis and Keith and Debbie Bennett. So too many Keiths. <laughs> but uh, the Davises were in their 30s. The Bennetts were in their 40s. We were in our 20s. And it was, I would say, it was less formal. I don't know that they were intentionally mentoring us, but we watched everything they did. Yeah. And we had tremendous respect for their marriage. They took their marriages very seriously, which of course also means they had a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't mean to say they were always earnest, but they really prioritized their marriage. And then we got to watch them raise their kids. Um, yeah. You know, again, the Davis, the kids were really young. Bennett's, the kids were teens. I, I would say, I don't know what you think, babe. We've not talked about this, but I think that was profound for both of us. Yeah, that's what came to mind as well, is just having kind of her front row seat and what yeah. it looked like to be, because at that point, I think they were 10 to 12 years into their, or more into their marriage. Yeah. yeah. Um, super impactful in our early years. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I think one thing I've learned from my parents is, is laughter um, mm. and the importance, I mean, Growing up in, um, in ministry and just observing, like, honestly, what my parents carried yeah. um, and feeling that weight. Also, yeah. at times, I was a pretty sensitive child and, could, and, and pretty observant. Um, but laughter was a huge part of our home. It was a huge part of our dinner table yeah. um, experience. And um, so I think that sticks out to me as well. Yeah. yeah. You both mentioned fun and it was yeah. Steve's comment, fun. And you mentioned laughter yeah. at a time like this missionaries that are listening in, some of them are in isolation or confinement or whatever it is and fun and laughter. Um, you know, how do, how does someone engage in a, a time, a, a time as we're in and focus on fun and laughter? I believe it's there, but how do yeah. you both intentionally because it's interesting you both mentioned that. So that makes yeah. me think that's a vital part of your marriage. And so how do it we, is, yeah, how can we cultivate hilarious. that fun, fun, <laughs> fun and laughter? Yeah, it's a great, we actually think it's an essential question. So yeah. there's so much pressure and anxiety 
And I do think that anxiety sends us the message that we have to be more earnest. We have to try harder. We Mm. often like we go to our Christian tools, which would be like pray through it. And of, of course, that's a great tool. I think Lisa and I are interested in other great tools. And so two, two anxiety displaces are love and laughter. Wow. And so you do have to be intentional about it. Yeah. Um, in, in family systems theory, the theory that I've really done a lot of work in, the systems theorist actually comes into, whether it's a marriage or an organization, and actually measures the earnestness. Hmm. And if the group or the couple are too earnest, that's the evidence they're in anxiety's grip. Wow. So the how, that's a great question. I don't know that we've ever broken down how we're funny. I mean, Lisa, maybe our middle child has a girlfriend and she was over at our house last night and she's delightful. Yeah. And Lisa made me tell a rather <laughs> embarrassing story about myself from when I was younger. And I was like, all right, here we go. Like, she's going to know a whole lot about me. It's a, just so you know, it's a time when I peed all over myself. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I think we do both look for laughter and then I guess, I don't know. Yeah. I think we also know that, um, that deep two things that connect us all together will be vulnerability and deep tears, right? That's Hmm. something that will connect people right away. When you're grieving together, it creates a bond like no other. Hmm. And that laughter also is right up there with a way that people can connect. And, in a world and in a time when we're so isolated and um, things seem so divided, yeah. laughter is an area that we can come together and it reminds us to be for each other. Yeah. Plus, I mean, it's, just, it's honestly, it's um, a physiological hack to yeah. help change your whole demeanor. Like, yeah. I mean, I could go into the nerdy brain science about the vagus nerve, which yeah. you're probably familiar with, but... Yeah. Um, that's a whole regulation that nerve helps regulate your body that goes from your brainstem all the way through your body into your main organs and things like singing at the top of your lungs, laughter, socializing can, if we engage in it, it, it's, it's like a pivot, right? To anxiety or anything else that we're experiencing around us. That's good. We may have avoided your question on how. I I think think the answer to how is just being intentional. Yeah, that's good. And stopping yourself from like white knuckling your way through. Hmm. So I think for Lisa and I, it is intentionally time together. Um, If we are under pressure, scheduling a date, you know, and obviously in every context that looks so different, but it doesn't mean it has to cost money. Yeah, I guess the how is intentionality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's been times too. Like, um, I encourage families when you can't come up with it naturally, you create like just create it. Um, so even for families, there's the thing called the laughing machine. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, no. but <laughs> here we go. For families, you lay down, right? Like you lay down. So one person's laying down, and then a next person lays down and puts their head uh-huh. on the person's stomach. Yeah. And then another member of the family puts a head on the person's stomach, right? Yeah. So your head to stomach laying out kind right. of like in a zigzag. And then with person- to a terrorist attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One person starts laughing and because our heads are connected to our to each stomach, right. you just it's contagious, right? Wow. And so you just end up being this whole laughing machine. Um yeah. No, that's crazy. But fun can change a lot of dynamics. 
You know, my kids, they, they call me, my name's uh, Aaron and they call me Ron. They say the Ron is the fun Aaron. And, um, uh, and so we'll, when we're out and I begin to tell a story or something, they're like, oh, this is Ron. Ron has come oh, out. Wow. The, the funny That's side awesome. of dad. And it is good in a way that my kids recognize that. But then, um, then it makes me think that I am the earnest part, I think, is the Aaron. And the Ron is the fun laughter. Let's have fun. So anyway... I'm, as I get older, I'm trying to be more Ron than I am Aaron. So anyway, it's just a, a running, running joke in our family. So yeah. Steve, you mentioned family systems theory. How can an understanding of family systems theory strengthen a marriage? And you both have high level education in this area. Can it, uh, uh, a missionary couple that doesn't have your background in understanding the mind and the brain kit, would an understanding of family systems theory help them on a basic level and would it help strengthen their marriage? Yes, I believe it would. And I think the good news for you listeners is like Lisa is actually a, a trained therapist. Mm. I'm just really interested in it. So in, in my theological training, I did all the study, but I had no licensure. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor who discovered this theory so the good news for, for your listeners is anybody can research, even when Lisa talked about the vagus nerve, you know, I've obviously, I've learned so much from her, Yeah. but thank God for Google. There's yeah. so much we can learn. <laughs> so yes, I would say that the most helpful thing I have discovered in family systems theory is it, it gets me out of content mm-hmm. and it teaches me how to notice what, what systems theory you could just call process. Mm-hmm. So it, we don't get as stuck. Like we still have disagreements. We still struggle. Right. But we don't tend to get stuck in a downward spiral, hmm. which is what tends to happen when you're just focusing on content. Content would be, Lisa said this, I said this, yeah. and everything gets worse. Yeah. But process is the ability to notice the way you relate, not what each other's saying. Hmm. And so the big, the big aha for me when I was doing more marriage counseling as a pastor, just very amateur level marriage counseling, is I wasn't really interested in what the couple were fighting about. They had always come in because they wanted to tell me what they were fighting about so that I could choose sides. That was really, yeah. let me get the pastor on my side and tell me. <laughs> that, that was the game. But when I would try to help them map out the way they fight, like I don't care if you're fighting about the kids or sex or money. Let's look at who starts it, who escalates it, who avoids. Yeah. That pattern is generally predictable. Hmm. And so systems theory gives you great tools to notice it. And I think my favorite thing is it, it depersonalizes it. So if you have conflict between you, which any missionary couple is going to have, you talk right. about incredible pressure, external pressure, cultural pressure, but it, it stops it from looking at your spouse as the problem. And it hmm. really does team up with your spouse. And together you are working on this external problem called your conflict. Wow. So some, somehow, even before systems theory, we learned that early and that's yeah. been a game changer for us that we're yeah. almost always, it's very, very rare that we're against each other. It's mostly common that we work hard to be for each other against whatever problem has come up between us. Hmm. It's really powerful. I would say for us that, and what we've learned about ourselves is that in conflict, Steve draws near yeah. and I need to withdraw. He's Mm. an external processor and I'm internal first and then Mm. I need to talk. And it took us a while to realize, man, what's going on? Because if I don't have my space to even put words around it, then I'm spiraling and it makes us worse. Wow. Um, And 
and Steve needs, he can think pretty quickly and process pretty quickly and he just wants to fix it. Um, and then his need to fix it right away without space, it, it was hard, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so figuring out that's an example, kind of a, pro, a process, like you're noticing, yeah. man, what's going on in me? Even like, what am I thinking? What are my emotions? And what do yeah. they mean? Um, yeah. Because anger right now, it, it means something, but there's something below the anger that I've got to figure out so that I can communicate. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was helpful for us. And the depersonalization of the, I think that's what you had said, Stephen, and Ed, as Lisa shared too, that depersonalization. How does, how, when you're in, when you're in conflict and, and it's with your husband and wife, how do you depersonalize that? Because to me, that sounds fascinating, but I don't know. I would do that on a practical level. That's a great question. I don't think it's natural to do it in the moment. Okay. But I think what helps in the moment is to picture your fight. Like, let's say most of the people who are listening had been married for a while. And by yeah. a while, I mean more than two years. By that yeah. time, you're in your patterns. Yeah. <laughs> so next time you're in that fight, just picture that your fight is a moth and it's heading toward a flame. Hmm. It's the same pattern as last time. Yeah. And so there's some, it does kind of spoil the fight. Like if you're in the middle of it, yeah. you, can, you do actually have the ability in the middle to notice, oh, wait a minute. We've been down this road. We have a well-worn <laughs> path down this road. And one of you, it only takes one of you to stop it, and that forces change in the other. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, in the middle of tension, if you can feel the rising tension, you can say, hey, I, I wonder if there's another way we can do this. And, wow. yes, it, it takes time. Yeah. It's, it's, you're not going to break the pattern right away. So, yeah, these aren't like miracle hacks where everything's suddenly fine. No, no, it no. just stops you from more of the same. Yeah, yeah, that's no, good. gets you off that treadmill. Well, and I think, I mean, it's true. It's hard in the moment. I think it's even sometimes what helps is the work after a fight or an mm. argument. Um, that's good. One of my favorite interpersonal neurobiologists is Dan Siegel. Mm -hmm. And he's developed um, just the acronym of SIFT. Mm -hmm. And so just like after something and you're reflecting on it, or even if you can before you're ready to react instead of respond is just noticing, you know, what are those, what are the sensations that's going on in my body? What are the images? Cause oftentimes when we're frustrated or angry, we have all these pictures of what we want to happen or yeah. what being right looks like. Yeah. Um, feelings is the F for sift and then hmm. thoughts. So it's wow. sift and you're yeah. sifting through what's going on in your body. And just even taking something like that just helps you to slow down yeah. Um, connect with yourself because yeah. when, when we're getting, you know, frustrated and angry or we, we feel rejected or not valued, we just become disconnected. Wow. Um, so those things can just help in the whole process too of, of slowing down to realize, wait, what do I need and what do I need to do differently? So that's Dan Siegel, you said, in yeah. SIFT. Yeah, I'll put, that in the, I'll put that in the show notes. I love those type things because yeah. I, I need a process to walk through. And um, like yeah. good ideas out there are really good. But when it, I'm in the heat of the moment like that, I can, I can latch on to that and I can, I can process through it. Lisa, one other thing you shared, you said, you said it quickly, but react, respond instead of react. Could you go a little bit deeper on what that what the importance of and maybe the difference between the two of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we 
react to something, then we are, um, it's usually impulsive. It's, we're not thinking it's, um, we're reacting based on emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it often comes out, um, cold or whatever top emotion we feel that's what's in the driver's seat with it. And we can kind of miss what's needed in ourselves and in the other person. Um, and, and we just, we lose connection, to be honest, with ourselves and with the other person. Wow. And that's kind of react. When we respond, I think I've, I've even learned, um, when we can respond, it's almost like we, again, slow down the process so that we can take like a body scan, we can stay connected to ourselves um, and be able to see the other person. So it really is just a slowing down so that we can respond to maybe what's needed rather than react to the heat of emotions. So how does that work? Because Steve, you said that Steve likes to jump in right away. And um, Steve, so how does that react, respond? How do you process that as somebody who wants to jump right in? Lisa says she likes to pull, she. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she says she prefers to process and then and then respond. But for someone like you, Steve, which I'm very close like you, uh, I just want to engage in and I, it's not fi- fix it. But yeah, maybe that's it. And um, so how do you how do how does that work for you, Steve? Yeah, it's a great question. I, so I, I think in the if you look at your marriage in the long view and I, I think what's really helpful is to really be clear on all the gifts that your marriage and that your spouse has given you. Wow. So for example, I am like, it's funny. I look back on what I didn't know about myself that I know now. Yeah. And Lisa's incredible kindness hmm. to where most days I, when I would come home from work, I would need almost an hour just to dump whatever was in my head and, and it's pretty rough. Like I don't actually often know what I think or feel until I say it. Yeah. And so her, her grace to, I'd walk in the door and really regardless of what was going on with the kids, several days a week, she would just sit down and listen as I would just, blah, 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 just, just madness from my day. That's unrelated to her. It's not about our marriage. It's just, she would give me the gift of debriefing the day. Yeah. And then what she had to learn is to not take it very seriously. Hmm. Because I would sound more certain than I really am. So maybe I'd talk about a new initiative at the church and her natural tendency would be to say, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. But she learned over time, well, he doesn't really mean it. He's actually just <laughs> chatting. I'm actually still working on that. Yeah, it's hard. Right? It's <laughs> hard because I don't know what I think or how passionately I think about it until I say it. But wow. I always sound passionate about everything. I'm yeah. kind of a natural salesperson. So, okay. So then when it comes to conflict it's very helpful to realize, boy, Lisa gives me this incredible gift. So I can give her the gift of space when we're struggling. Wow. Like, you know, like it's a, yeah. that sounds fair to me. No, it's good. If all these years of her listening to me blather on about whatever half-baked idea, when I feel a need to resolve, the two things that are helpful is to realize, okay, I feel a need to rush in to this woman who's an incredible gift to me. Hmm. And secondly, just with my own studies, the need to rush in is an anxious response. It's, I shouldn't trust it. Wow. You know, I can wait. I'm, I don't actually need to resolve. Yeah. And, and for me, that's become easier with my spouse than it has like in work. If somebody okay. wants to meet and yeah. they have an issue, I tend to need to rush into that. That takes more work. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. Very insightful. Next, I wanted to ask you both too about the geniograms. You know, I'm not, I don't have the, the training and I'm not a pastor like Steve and I don't have the training like Lisa, but as we work in member care and work with missionaries, um, it's been amazing family of origin, how family of origin, I used to, when people, when I was a younger missionary, I thought, ah, oh, come on, family of origin stuff, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? But the, the reality of it is, is I would sit down with, with guys that were, there was a struggle, um, and, uh, and husband and wives. I thought, wow, there's a lot for this family or <laughs> family of origin thing that I used to uh, not consider. So what, it, what would be the value of a geneogram? Um, and maybe would that be the right way for a, fam, a husband and wife to consider how their family of origin impacts their marriage? Maybe positively, maybe in some more challenging ways. I'd just love to hear, hear from both of you on that. Yeah. So Pete Scazzaro is one of the more famous people who talks about genograms. I love what he says. He says, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And I think that's the simplest summary Yeah, uh, that when you do family of origin work, you start to take seriously the Old Testament discussions about the sins of the fathers being handed mm. down to the fourth generation, which mm. that, that passage is unfair because it, of course, also means the gifts of your family. Yeah. Doing a genogram is not about digging up dirt and it's not about looking for someone to blame. All wow. it is, is to really understand what am I holding on to? What's holding on to me? What are the strengths that my family passed down to me that are such a gift? And then yeah. what are the liabilities and threats? So yes, a genogram would be the deepest tool to do that. Yeah. But any of your listeners, we would probably recommend having these conversations in groups, if you could, okay. not just as couples. But being couples with other missionaries would be ideal. If you had okay. three couples or four couples and they were able to get together on Zoom or in yeah. person, I think one simple question that you can go around the circle and ask is, what are two assets that my family handed down to me that really helped me in my marriage and in my vocation? Hmm. And then what are two liabilities? Hmm. And, and so like when I, when I did it, I was 24 when I did a genogram and it was fascinating what the group saw that I didn't see. Yeah. So a genogram is an actual document. We typically write them on giant pieces of butcher paper. They're usually six or eight feet wide. Yeah. And it's a bunch of squares and circles and squiggles and lines, but it's, it's a coded document. It's like a picture to show and you usually map back to your great grandparents. So it's like a family tree, wow. but it's not interested that your great, whatever was a civil war general. Right. It's interested in family propaganda. What were the messages? Who were the secret keepers? Where was addiction? Where was illness and mental illness? Yeah. Uh, so like our listeners, you could Google, for example, Tiger Woods's genogram or yeah. um, John F. Kennedy's genogram. Or Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker's on there as well. <laughs> you know, so, so people say, no wonder Luke whined as a teenager. He was so yeah. whiny. Yeah. His, the first time he met his dad, his dad tried to chop his hand off. That's like, right. tough, you know? <laughs> um, and so just understanding. And, and so Felice and I, you know, we grew up in such radically different families with different values. And, and what's also beautiful is you really can sift the gifts and kind of try to, with the gospel, yeah. cut off the curses, so to speak, to yeah. be really extreme about it. Um, my goodness, I, I've facilitated genograms with people with the amount of abuse. Uh, I, I facilitated one last year and the woman, she warned us, she said, it's going to be explicit. 
<clears throat> she went into four generations of sexual deviance and explicit behavior. And, and then just for her and her husband to make these vows to God to try to redeem that for the, the next generation is really powerful. Wow. So it is a deeper tool. I, I'm not sure I would advise people to go into it without someone in the room that okay. has had some training in genograms. Yeah. Maybe. I'd defer to Lisa on that, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's important to have someone that has training because it's who has been through it before and can look for things because it, it can there's important questions that you ask when you do a genogram mm-hmm. um, that can lead to both hope and reality, right? Yeah. Like some pretty crucial awareness. And I think when we're caught up in our own stories, sometimes without somebody else, it's, it's hard to do either well. Yeah, that's um, very good. And to be able to see the redeeming value, um, honestly, sometimes and the, the yeah. gifts. From that's good. That's yeah, good. most of the genograms I facilitate that uncover trauma um, require a lot of follow-up. And for me, the follow-up is getting them connected to an actual trauma therapist. Okay. So when we, when we do a genogram, usually I'm calling that person that day and then the next day, because it is, it just uncovers things. However, at the, at the simpler level, just, okay, what, what did I inherit from my family? Or another question people can ask, what, what did I believe was always true that actually isn't always true? That's always Hmm. an interesting question. Hmm. Uh, And and I'll tell you what, I'm not proud of this, but what I believed is cusses are always right. (laughs) If we (laughs) say it, it's true. And so that was like, what do you mean we're not always right? It's funny now, but that was life-changing when I was Wow. And so what I hear both of you saying, this is not something you just do flippantly and say, hey, let's sit down and do a genogram and go into it. That it's, it's something that should be intentional and, and focused and really thought, thought out. Is that, would that be correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we are just now trying to sort out, and I think we've solved it, how to do genograms over Zoom. Okay. We, we've always done them in person and I think, but we've not done one over Zoom yet. So we'll be testing that in 2021. Okay. I think that would open up the doors tremendously for missionaries. Yeah. yeah. But, but even depending on your country and the training in the country, genograms are worldwide. Yeah. Most marriage and family therapists would be trained in facilitating a genogram. And certainly while you're on home assignment, it would yeah. be a great opportunity if people wanted to. Yeah. What something if- I learned... No, go ahead. Sorry, Lisa. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think something I learned also in the whole process and I kind of see also unfold, especially for those that are involved in, have have dedicated their lives to be um, for mission work um, and for ministry is um, the perception that we are there for people no matter what the cost. Um, And that was the huge one that I saw that I had perceived as important in my own life hmm. that I had to do my own therapeutic work on, go see someone. And Steve and I have talked a lot about that. Um, and it, it became a misbelief, you know, hmm. of mine and caused a lot of disruption just in wow. my own interior, you know? Yeah. So I think that's the beauty of these is, and sometimes it's, it's what we've perceived also. Yeah. It, it may not be really what, what was, but yeah. we act on our perceptions. Yeah. Um, and so that's valuable too. That's good. Realize. That's a good that's word. That's a great point. A lot of what a genogram uncovers are really good family traits that you've turned into a stronghold or an absolute. So the example of we exist for other people, that's a great 
Christian yeah. trait, and it has benefited the kingdom. And also, it means it's difficult to take care of yourself or to take your own struggles seriously. Because yeah. when you find that your worth exists out of how you exist for other people, yeah. that's not true. That's not yeah. what the Bible says either. Yeah, um, yeah it's powerful. That's good. That's good. Steve, you mentioned that you, your marriage is, um, you came from very different family backgrounds. I think if, if that was what I heard you say. So when you came into marriage and in and, and your marriage, how did, how do you deal with expectations? Because if you came from very different, ba- oh, sorry, different backgrounds, how does, how do you deal with those un, unspoken, unconscious, uh, unrealistic expectations that sometimes can, can creep into a marriage? How did you both process that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in the early years of the marriage, we avoided it. Well, okay. we didn't speak them, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think we both tend to be conflict avoiders. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, I, I'm really proud of my parents' marriage. They mm-hmm. have worked really hard. But in my early years, and really well, the whole time I was in the house, it was pretty rough. Um, mm-hmm. and I think they would say that too. If they were listening to this, I think they'd say, oh, yeah. And, and so their fights were pretty epic. Yeah. Um, so I think I also came into marriage expecting that, yeah. expecting that um, the price I would pay to get to be with this woman is a lot of conflict. Okay. And it just wasn't the case. Um, and partly because we both tend to avoid, I think we had a fairly smooth looking early years. Mm-hmm. But also what's true is it was frankly so much more delightful and life-giving than I could have ever dreamed yeah. that that for me is my predominant experience of marriage is just, yeah. wow, this is actually great. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. Um, so that would be my answer, I guess. Yeah. I, think, I think what's important in your question is to know the difference between our expectations and our desires. And I think we often confuse those, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and because desire goes so deep, we often keep it up in our brains and, and make it an expectation. Um, and I think without realizing that, that we've had to work through that. Like what are, what are expectations, but really what do we desire, right? Yeah. Like what do we desire from one another? What do we need? What is it that we think we need? And what does that look like? Yeah. And what does it also look like that we can't be everything to yeah. each other as well? Yeah. Um, I'll say this, Aaron, as a pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm mortified to tell you the amount of men I've talked to in my church who uh, talk, want to figure out marriage. Yeah. And I simply ask them, what does your wife want? Yeah. And that's the first time they've thought about it. Like, I, for me, it was a simple question. What does your wife hmm. want? And they'll be like, from what? <laughs> well, from you, from life, <laughs> from herself. So I do think early on, I don't know why, but I think we both tried to figure out what does each other want out of yeah. each other, out of life. And then the very simple question, can I give it to them? Yeah. And I do think that for us developed a set of core values of behavior yeah. with each hmm. other that we like made a value. We're not going to get hung up on the little things. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter. Like love really matters and little things don't. And th- those little irritability things when you just yeah. live with someone, yeah. the idea that you don't, you're not an irritable person, but they are, you know, some of those <laughs> so I think, I think we did both come in with a robust sense of that. And then I think we both 
on a regular basis, figure out what does each other want? And then how, how do I really fill my spouse's bucket? If one of my jobs in life is to be one of God's conduit of love to my spouse, then I want to do that. Yeah. And so we, we have always, always pursued each other actively, we, like regularly. Yeah. Um, Lisa figured out early that bragging on me in front of other people while I'm in the room is like yeah. gold, gold standard. And so she makes a habit of it. Uh, yeah. Even to this day, I'm like a 48 year old man. And she will tell her parents in my presence, man, Steve did this thing this week. And I'll be like, Oh, forget about it. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a bucket. And I try to do the same for her. So yeah. that just, just those strengthening bonds really yeah. help resolve a lot. No, that's good. That's excellent. One last question. Um, listening to defend um, versus listening to learn. And that I, that's kind of, you kind of segue into that, the desire to learn. How can we shift from being on the defensive in a marriage or self-focused? Because what I heard you say, Steve, was is the, man, the men were more thinking about how they could get their needs met and not necessarily thinking about what their wives would, how they could care and love their wife. So how can we shift from being on the defensive or me focused and more on our marriage focused and our spouse focused? Does that, does that question make any sense at all? It does. It's a really good question as far as how. Um, I think it does start with awareness. And there's, these are some of the learning postures. And there's actually quite a few, but even in even to go beyond just defend and listen to learn. Um, there's the listen to hijack. So okay. when you're, you're trying, you're listening in and wanting to like turn the conversation to what you want or, you know, really go down a road of something that's really bugging you and, yeah. you know, be heard. And then there's also listen to fix, which happens mm. a lot. In <laughs> um, and, and honestly, listen to fix quickly turns on the other side to listen to defend. Um, okay. And then, and then you're just missing each other. Right. Yeah. So one of the things is just usually if you notice your spouses or whoever you're talking to their response while you're talking, <laughs> you can probably look at their expression and begin to tell, Hmm, <laughs> I might be on a rampage right now, or am yeah. I, I might, they're aware or clearly I have an agenda that maybe I wasn't aware of. Hmm. Um, so oftentimes it's just the expression on the other person or, or the tone, right? Yeah. And the other person, or you can just, can just watch. Um, that becomes a cue to me that, holy cow, this has gone a different direction than I wanted. Um, and then I find in my life, I keep coming back to just slowing down because Speeding up when we're talking or quickly then trying to fix what we said, just it, it doesn't give, it, it causes reaction out of both myself and the other person. And sometimes I think we just need a do-over, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. um, it, if I had a do-over right now in this conversation, yeah. um, then what I do is take about 10 seconds of silence. Yeah. And then I would ask you if if we can rewind everything I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm going to start again, yeah. um, would just be a way that we can transition. Yeah. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? It's, it's interesting. Like I, like I learned that technique from Lisa, the listen to defend, listen to fix. Yeah. Um, but what keeps going through my mind is nothing to do with the question. So just 
just I feel very compelled to tell your audience that yeah. just the nature of missionary work is so others focused. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're in a non-Western setting in, a, in the developing world, you know, Lisa and I have been to a number of countries visiting dear friends of ours who are missionaries yeah. and we see the revolving door yeah. and we see that you can't plan because your day is interrupted by yeah. crisis. And, <laughs> and I think what I'm feeling like a strong compulsion to say is, for these couples, like 2021 can be different. Yeah. And, and if you could start to believe that the best thing you actually can offer your context is a healthy marriage, hmm. that, that really fighting for intimacy with your spouse and carving out time and doing less work for the Lord, hmm. it, it's counterintuitive to all of us. Yeah. But I think your kingdom impact actually becomes much bigger when the two of you, as, especially in countries where, where so many marriages are just so volatile anyway, yeah. for you to actually model and in, where you enjoy each other. I, yeah. I, I just would, I would ask people to really see that as a gospel call. That's a good word. That's a very good word. My parents came to visit us here in Madagascar, and my dad said, your house is like Grand Central Station. He said, from 7 a.m., to nine o'clock at night, you're because it, it, you said it. I mean, there's the spiritual side, but then also the medical side. And people's emergencies aren't planned, and kids getting sick and falling, breaking bones, it's not planned. And he said, I, you know, and they were, it was not unsettling to them, but it was eye opening to them. They said, your life is like 14 to 16 hours. And he said, it's not like in an office. He said, it's your house. He said, they're just yeah. people continually rotating through your house, coming and going. And, and Steve, your point is 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 right on. Um, I don't think, and I I didn't realize how abnormal that was until I had someone objectively look at it and say from the outside, "This is uncommon." You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's suddenly abnormal, but it, it's very uncommon to live in this way. And then the impact it was having. I have a beautiful wife, and she has always been very. Um, loving and especially when people's kids are sick you know she was never complained in any way shape or form but at the same time my emotional energy and physical energy was all focused there and i I had less and less to as you're saying to focus on my marriage because i have i have a limited amount of energy you know i mean and limited (laughs) amount of emotional energy physical energy and spiritual energy and um Mm -hmm. And it, it took a time. I think we're, we're growing. I've at least put some boundaries um, and yeah. the boundaries have helped um, and we're growing in that area, but it's a, a great, great work. Yeah, Steve we, and Lisa. We have a, yeah. Go ahead. I'm Go sorry. Ahead, sorry. I, no, no, I you're, good. you're trying to. No, 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 you're good. You're good. Talking. You're good. We have a, a, a missionary in Paraguay and he's okay. a doctor. I think he has seven kids. And after years of that 14 hour day, he just has a bucket in the waiting list in the waiting room. And once the bucket is out of numbers, you have to go home for the day and try again tomorrow. Yeah. And, and he says, I know that means that's a life and death thing. Yeah. But it's the he said, I used to believe the fallacy that one more patient would somehow, you know, but it is an unending need. Yeah. And so I think what you said there, Aaron, I think is worth capturing this idea of stewarding your energy. Yeah. We, Lisa and I do intentionally save energy for each other. Wow. We do not come home spent yeah. where we have nothing left to give. Um, so, and, and, 
And that to me is the way you fulfill the great commission. Yeah. Like I think we believe that the only way to fulfill it is empty, empty, empty. Yeah. But you can actually love your neighbor by filling yourself up and then hmm. loving out of the overflow. And it doesn't mean one or the other, yeah. but most of us only believe in the emptying ourselves model. Yeah. But there's that, you look at Jesus model. He, he only, filled himself up and said no to crowds. Yeah. yeah. He, he would step over a sick person to heal a sick person. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we, we highly value energy stewardship for each other. No, it's a great word. You both, I could talk to you all day, but I've asked, I've already went over the time that I asked you for. So, um, I appreciate it. And, uh, would Steve or Lisa, would one of you pray for the audience that, um, the wisdom that you've shared, the insight that you've shared, it's been impactful for me already. Um, but as their listeners and it won't, it won't just be things that we heard, but things that we'll put into action in our, in our marriages and in our personal lives. Would you, would you pray for us? Yep. Absolutely. Dear Jesus, we um, thank you that, gosh, I get emotional when I pray <laughs> and just knowing that, um, that families that are dear and tender are listening. But God, we, we thank you that ultimately you are in control and we are not. We thank you that you see all, that you hold all, that you love um, more powerfully than we could ever imagine. We thank you that you are hope. Um, we thank you that you are sustenance, that you are strength, that you bring redemption. Um, gosh, we give you praise that we get to dig into to you, Lord, and that we don't have to find all of these things in ourselves or in our spouse or in our work. And so my prayer... Um, for these families is that they could be rooted and established in who you are and that they could find joy and see joy as a gift from you. Um, and Lord, that um, I just, I, I pray for time um, for each other. I pray for our conversations and I pray um, just for the understanding that, golly God, that you delight in them regardless of what they do, that you delight in them for who they are. So as they do this work with um, communities around them, and as they do this work and growing in love in their marriages and in their families, bless them, Lord. I just pray that you encourage.